agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jay. How are you doing this morning? Well, like a Fox News host, I guess I'm just happy to be here. Oh, very nice. Um, Very very topical. I like that. And that is definitely something we're going to talk about, along with uh, some Supreme Court stuff, the debt ceiling measure, the House passed, uh, Disney suing DeSantis, and uh, Biden announcing for 2024. Well, there's there's a whole lot, and I haven't even mentioned the Donald Trump rape trial, but we are going to get to all of, well, some of that, certainly, at least, and we're going to get started with that in just one second. All right, Jay, so on last week's show, We weren't able to discuss the Supreme Court staying a lower court ruling that restricted access to the abortion drug mifeprestone, which preserved access to it until the case works its way through the appeals process. And in that uh, case, Justices Alito and Thomas dissented. Now, Thomas dissented without comment, but Alito actually did issue a dissent. And in that dissent, Justice Alito wrote in part, The government has not dispelled legitimate doubts that it would even obey an unfavorable order in these cases, much less that it would choose to take enforcement actions to which it has strong objections. And here he was possibly referring to uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra, who during a CNN interview, when he was asked if he would recommend that the FDA ignore the ban, said everything is on the table. Though later that day, White House Press Secretary uh, Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters, look, we are going to always follow the law, always. Now, there's a related issue that Ken and Trey got into. That's not quite, that's not quite a denial. (laughs) Well, I mean, we are, well, we'll get into that. But there's this related issue, and Trey and Ken got into this a few weeks back, and that's whether the FDA exercising its discretion and choosing to not prosecute anyone distributing uh, mifeprestone in defiance of that quarter would actually be ignoring the ruling. But but either way, Alito's point would still stand, which is that the court, in his words, would simply refuse to take a step that has not been shown as necessary to avoid the threat of any real harm during the presumably short period at issue. And by which uh, Alito was referring to the fast tracking of the government's appeal at the Fifth Circuit. So, Jay, a couple of things. First, what do you think about the court granting the stay? Because Alito and Thomas were the only two who objected to that. And secondly, I wanted to get your take on Alito's thoughts on his sole dissent. And I say sole dissent because presumably if Thomas agreed with his reason, Alito's reasoning, Thomas would have joined that dissent. So, yeah, first with the, the court granting the stay, do you think that was the right move? I think it was um, for for a, a number of reasons, um, but I, as I'll say in a minute, I, I think Alito's not wrong, right? Um, uh, I think you know I'm we're often um, you and I talk a lot about Chevron deference and, and various forms of deference, and I'm I'm a deference skeptic um, for a lot of reasons, but. In something like this, I would say if, if there is an application 
or agency deference. Uh, it would be in this type of case, right, where the FDA is saying a, a medication or something is is safe, effective, uh, can be can be sold. Um, I, I think that's because again, that comes down to more a technical um, uh, question within the FDA's um, uh, sphere of knowledge, rather than a, a bigger policy question, um, which is often what you know. So often these. Um, deference cases come down to. So I, I'm, you know, I, I get that. And, and I, I think given the, when you're seeking um, to do something on, on this level, this type of injunction, it is sort of extraordinary relief that you're seeking, right? It would upend uh, the lives of, of a lot of people. Um, and you balance that against, listen, this has been the status quo for, for quite some time beforehand. And, you know, what's likely to happen um, what, where's the greater harm in terms of, of upending the status quo during these couple weeks while we um, uh, get through the appeal and it comes up uh, on the, the you know regular docket um, or, or you at least you get a, a decision um, versus uh, essentially second guessing um, the administrative agency without all the facts in front of you. So I, I, I get that. Um, and especially uh, idea. this has been a status quo that's been in place for quite a while. And I know you've been pretty consistent over time is saying that if the court what, when the court is being asked to do something, especially in their uh, emergency docket, when they haven't had a chance to review the evidence that the presumption should be in favor of not doing anything, of not upsetting the status quo unless there is compelling evidence to do so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's that, that's just not my opinion. That that's sort of the, that's kind of the law, really. Um, um, so so yeah, I I understand and get where the coming. And also, I I I would like to you know put it out there. And I know you're not one of these people who says this, but um, for all the clamoring that uh, one often hears from the left about the Supreme Court being illegitimate and uh, uh, you know, ideologically blinkered and, and uh, you know, pretty soon uh, all women will be wearing burqas and so forth. Um, this would stand, seem to stand as as counter evidence, uh, right, um, that they're applying the law on the merits, uh, even though I mean, it's not really the merits merits because it's still sort of a procedural ruling. But they're precise, they're they're applying the procedural law on the merits um, rather than uh, a, a preordained political outcome. Um, now, now that said, uh, like I said, I don't think Alito's wrong <laughs> um, in terms of of raising complaints just about how the the shadow docket is. And I again, I put the shadow docket in the silly scare quotes. It's not. There's nothing particularly shadowy about it. It's just that it's it's emergency. Uh, it's stuff that comes up right away um, and is <clears throat> is necessarily done without uh, all of the briefing, all of the argument that you would have in a full-fledged court decision. Um, but in this uh, case, a, I wonder in this case, ahead. though, you would, you would think then that uh, it's, it's justices Alito and Thomas who are the judicial activists here uh, and, and the other seven who are kind of going by that standard, uh, that, that standard burden of saying, well, uh, the, the status quo should stand unless there is compelling yeah. evidence. Right. And so it's yeah. kind of, Although, I mean, what what Alito hits at is is less um, uh, that and more just of uh, I think he's he's taking shots at other members of the court um, 
who had, uh, you know, who, who would have been more interventionary in, in other cases that says, look, if, um, uh, if, if, you know, we should have taken these, you know, issued stays, um, in other cases, then we should issue this stay here. Um, it's all again, right if you do it, but arguing, not when I do it. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, yeah. So it's just arguing for sort of a procedural consistency. Um, and, and I'm, I'm trying to find the exact words, but it's sort of the, well, look, if, if that was the, uh, um, case in, you know, whatever, I'm pulling it up here. Um, then, then certainly it should be the case here. Um, and again, he, he's one of those, you know, when you're, when you're doing a dissent, uh, on a procedural issue, um, you've got sort of free reign to, to know that, look, nothing's going to happen here, but you can just kind of take the, um, uh, you know, take the shot of, look, if we're going to do these types of things, um, we ought to be consistent in, in doing it. Except, you know, when we're talking about consistency, I think we need to be clear what we're talking about. That's not to say the court should always grant stays or always not. And so we're talking about consistency in terms of applying the uh, applying the rule, applying the standard consistently. And, and now reasonable people can differ on this. And I think you and I actually, even though we may differ on the underlying uh, reproductive rights issue, we both agree that the majority made the right decision here. And so yeah. in that no, sense, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess the, the issue I have with Alito's dissent is when he talks about the government has not dispelled legitimate doubts that would even obey an unfavorable order. My first thought is, well, well, wait a second, then is the presumption that the government will not obey an order? Because that seems to be what Alito was suggesting. And, and the idea that there are legitimate doubts here, I find to be highly questionable, given that the White House said we will always obey the law. Always. That's about as strong a statement. I, I think if you're going to make an argument from the court that, well, we won't issue a stay because we think the government's going to behave lawlessly. That's a pretty strong claim. You need a whole lot more than some backbenchers and uh, a statement that was quickly walked back from HHS secretary to justify that. And that's where I think Alito got way too far out on a limb here. So I, I disagree a little on that, because to, to me, I don't think the, um, the response uh, uh, by uh, Katrina Jean-Pierre was was really – she didn't say we will um, uh, agree or, or follow what the Supreme Court says. Right. There is this there's sort of this wiggle room of uh, the, you know, we'll follow the law. But if the if that um, uh, illegitimate majority gets it wrong, um, obviously, we're not going to follow that law. See, I think that's how I read it. That's how I think Alito read it. I, I see. I think that is such a tortured reading. If you're going to be a textualist, look, we are always going to follow the law. Always is about as strong and general a statement as you can possibly make. I understand what you're saying, but I think yeah, that but, reading only works if you are starting from a presumption of bad faith. But look at stuff like DACA. Right. Um, look at there. I mean, there are a number of other other. Play, look at the, the student loan cases. Uh, 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 look at the. Uh, um, oh gosh, some of, some of these. Um, I, I would say the clean power play, but but the the idea that um, you know the administration sat down and said, okay, how can we insulate this from judicial? How can we insulate these decisions from judicial review? 
Um, even, and we're always going to follow the law. That so that's to me, I think that's let's that's, say that's even concerning gr- and, mm. and even granting and, and that. The, let's say let's say I grant that. Okay, but even so, making this case that well, we will not we will not grant a stay because there is at least there is a possibility that the government will ignore us because in, in certain instances, the government has used discretion to not prosecute in certain instances, sometimes broadly, like you said, you know, with, with, uh, the, uh, with the DACA or as the argument Ken made with the federal government not prosecuting marijuana crimes at the federal level, right? And so using that as the base to say, well, no harm will be suffered because there's a chance that the government won't enforce this law or will use their discretion that is pretty thin gruel i think and so that th- i think that's why alita was the on- was alone in this because even the other justices who might be at least sympathetic in terms of policy and, and might have some doubts about the government's uh willingness to you know uh, go along even they thought wow that that's kind of out there Sam, I mean, so, so yeah, I think there's a reason why it was a lone uh, dissent, and I think uh, the the most the, the rest of the court, even the other conservatives, were right not to join with that, which I think is just kind of uh, beyond the pale a little bit. Okay. Well, my my other point I was, I was going to make was, and I, I sort of started to make it, but um, then I got myself sidetracked. The the you know he he says, listen, because in this case. Um, the shadow docket um, essentially did grant relief, right, uh, in, in, in issuing a stay. Um, and he said, listen, that practice has come under criticism from many other justices and other cases saying this is inappropriate to use the shadow docket this way. And he goes on to say, look, if, if those complaints were appropriate then, they're certainly appropriate now. Um, and, and, I, and I think he's right there. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, yeah, you can't, you can't sort of have it both ways and say, oh my gosh, it's, it's terrible that we would use this, uh, shadow docket to, um, you know, make decisions on big things, uh, without full briefing and so forth. Um, but then sometimes you do it. So that's, that's where I am. Right. And I I think, I think you can, this is going to sound weird, but I, I think I can agree with, with Alito, um, uh, and also agree that, uh, the court probably got got it right on the the merits again the procedural merits as it were so yeah, you could you can grant that that I, I may disagree with you on this but I, I see your general point saying that well it's not that what Lido is saying is is completely wrong and illegitimate it's just that on balance you feel that yeah and so I think that's I think that's yeah uh, Alitos can just kind of call out some other uh, other colleagues to say listen if you're going to do this let's be consistent and, and you know. I and, think, and raising to me, to me, I, and again, we would disagree on this. I, I think that uh, I think there is uh, a, a genuine concern uh, about whether the government would, because there, there are other statements. Um, I'm trying to think was a senator from Washington uh, <laughs> sort of urged resistance. Uh, the idea of, of if the um, not uh, that they're not part of the executive branch, and so they have no uh, exactly, no no, that's, and that's fair, but. Um, they're they're from the same party as the executive branch, and I think I would expect share some of the same sentiments. But. Well, you know, I mean, 
you're from the same party as Donald Trump, so I don't know that we necessarily but, – but, but anyway, I wanted to make a larger point on this. And I think what a lot of people, uh, listeners of the show probably appreciate this, but there's only been actually one full case on this that has been decided, and that's at the district court level. And everything else that's happened so far has been through this shadowy emergency, right? I mean the, the Fifth Circuit and now the Supreme Court and so forth. And so I think really – People do that, that scare quotey sort of thing. But, you know, it's uh, uh, the process isn't that scary. And I, I think I, I'm, I'm with you in saying that, well, no, I mean, this, there's, an, there's a reason why we have this, right, to make sure that there is no harm that is irreparable harm that is suffered while a case is being appealed. And I don't have any problem with this. And I think when we talk about, well, why do we see maybe more activity on this shadow docket, horrible name, right, is is that, well, when you have more of these contentious issues being raised, that's naturally going to happen. And I don't know that it's a bad thing. I think you could argue that it's actually a good thing in the system operating in the appropriate way. Well, I think it's, and maybe it's 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 not a, a bad or a good thing, right? I think it is the system operating the way it's supposed to. Um, but maybe it is uh, uh, a symptom of of a, you know, bigger political problem. Right. Just just a sharply divided uh, country um, and uh, issues being resolved um, essentially by executive order um, that are extremely controversial that open themselves up to this immediate challenge. Um, and, it, you know, coming coming from both sides. So, I, I yeah, I, I can say it's, it's sort of a. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily indicative of national health that you see a whole lot of these. But I don't blame the court for it. The courts, the courts just sort of like the immune system responding to this, right? right. Uh, there's yeah, there's a like fever that. because yeah. there's something else going on. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great analogy. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to something uh, entirely different, actually. Uh, in a party line vote this week with all but four Republicans in favor and all Democrats opposed, the House of Representatives on Wednesday approved the Limit Save Grow Act of 2023. And this is legislation that would, first off, raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion or through March of 2024, whichever comes first, cut discretionary spending to 2022 levels, adding a 1% yearly growth cap for the next decade, claw back unspent COVID aid, and block President Biden's student debt relief plan. Rescind the $71 billion or so that Congress previously appropriated to the IRS to upgrade technology and boost hiring. Uh, repeal or modify tax credits for renewable and clean energy, energy-efficient property, alternative fuels, electric vehicles. Establish new work requirements for Medicaid and expand work requirements for SNAP and uh, temporary assistance for needing families and require that major federal rules, and that's defined here as rules likely to result in an annual economic effect of at least $100 million, be approved by Congress before they take effect. So there's a lot there. And this measure is, of course, dead on arrival in the Democratic-controlled Senate. And President Biden has repeatedly said that he would not negotiate over the debt ceiling and has demanded a clean bill that only involves raising the debt ceiling and not that laundry list of other things that I just read off that House Republicans uh, are, have attached to it. So, Jay, what do you think? Is this the start of 
negotiations between the between well House Republicans, Senate Democrats, and the White House, or do you think that Biden is going to stick to his position of not negotiating, basically kind of continuing the the game of chicken? Um, I would hope it's the beginning of negotiations. Um, Again, if if the there there's going to be some pressure on uh, some some Democrats uh, when it comes to you know you're telling me you know you 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 won't accept uh you know slashing the federal budget to 2022 levels um uh, or or capping a 1% growth for this this period uh for one year um in in again the 1% growth in in discretionary spending right not no entitlements are touched and so forth um i i think those are good issues to run on those are good issues to to campaign on um and make speeches on uh, some of the other pieces, uh, the the work requirements, that's widely popular um, in a lot of a lot of places, and that's that's a tough tough thing to oppose. Um, the student loan uh, piece, I think that's probably more more something that could be given away, negotiated away. There's no way Biden's going to give that up, I don't think. Um, but I, I do think Biden is, you know, at his peril if he says I'm I'm not going to negotiate because at some point if we're getting if we're getting away from the president can say. I want to increase the debt ceiling. I don't want any strings attached. Um, uh, there, you know, we're, we're starting to blur our, our lines of separation of powers. Look, Congress is supposed to be in charge of the budget. Um, uh, you know, the president obviously has has a veto, but um, it, it, at some point, it's it's so show, showing sort of a, a lack of respect if you're not going to um, at least engage in negotiations now. I think I think that this proposal gives gives the president a lot of room to negotiate, right? Um, and and there's also a point of uh, if you're going to blame this on on someone, it's going to be a tougher uh, tougher. To, I mean, the media will will help and will do a good job of it of, of blaming uh, House Republicans for this, but um, they've produced a bill that ups the debt ceiling um, with strings that. You know, some of them, some of them I get uh, are are never going to be agreed to, but some of them seem to be pretty reasonable um, uh, compromises. So uh, my sense is he'll negotiate, uh, although he won't call it negotiation, right? There'll be a way out to say, listen, we can agree to this and this and this. Um, uh, But uh, I'm still standing firm against these uh, these terrorists. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I I think that. It seems to me that a number of these provisions were clearly uh, included so that Kevin McCarthy could actually get the the initial majority he needed to start negotiations. Like, for instance, the uh, repealing or modifying those energy tax credits, that's not going to happen, that uh, uh, a number of those things aren't going to happen. Yeah, I'd agree. Those are those are giveaways. Those are yeah things you get people on board and then eventually would be given away. But but see, I don't even know that they're giveaways because I think that given the, the the slender, the slim nature of the Republican majority and the necessity to bring on so many kind of conservative Freedom Caucus hardliners that it might be difficult to negotiate those away and still get the votes you need necessarily. I'm not sure, but I I guess I would say that, like, for instance, uh, you can say, well, okay, raising the debt ceiling, combining the debt ceiling with spending cuts 
or limiting the growth of spending. Those two things naturally go together. The rest of it is, and maybe you throw in the the clawback of the unspent COVID aid. Okay, reasonable. Yeah. But the rest of it is just all well. What can what can we get Freedom Caucus member X, Y, and Z to to basically say that they were able to get in that that kind of thing? So. But also just the nature of the raising the debt ceiling, right? Through March of 2024 or $1.5 whichever comes first. In other words, let's set up another fight on this in the heat of the presidential election year. I, I mean, you know, this, this is pretty clearly well, – uh, this is just as much a political document and not a serious legislative proposal as, say, the president's initial budget is every year. And, and I think – yeah, everyone should in, should understand that it's that. It's, there's no way that House Republicans said, oh, this is what we think we're going to get. No, no. And that's, yeah, I would agree. And that's, I, if, if McCarthy is smart and look, he's smart enough to, to be speaker. Um, although there, there are some, some curveballs that his caucus can throw him. Um, you know, my sense is he would have gone into this saying, this is, you know, understanding this is our negotiating position. This is not our drop dead offer. Um, uh, if it is the, the drop dead offer, well, then, yeah, then I think we've we've got a, a problem. And I think what happens at the end of the day is um, enough Republicans would would peel off and, and vote for a clean debt ceiling to avoid a, um, uh, a default. Um, and again, you don't but, need you, you don't really need that many Republicans to vote for it in the first place. I mean, as long as, say, I don't think McCarthy would would go for anything that couldn't get a majority of his caucus, but you can easily build a coalition with the majority of the Republic Republican caucus and enough Democrats. So this is not exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You can, you can lose, you can give away some of this, like the IRS funding, um, which, which I think you can argue is properly for another day. Right. Um, and some of these other subsidies, um, those probably should be standalone bills. Uh, but yeah, you can you can give those away, and then still maybe get enough vulnerable Democrats um, who will join you on things like okay, keep the work requirement and uh, you know sort of the budget stability and the the growth limit for uh, for the next year. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's no, I think it's it's a smart move politically, and I think it's uh, smart policy wise as well. Um, and we'll just and, and again, if if McCarthy's um, you know, half as smart as I, I, I think he is, he he would have done the numbers and and done the counting and kind of know where he stands, um, in terms of being able to deliver votes at the end of the day. I, I think if I'm in Biden's position, uh, at least this was I, this is what I would try to do in this position. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't negotiate on a one year raising the signal, and I sure wouldn't negotiate uh, or agree to raising it. On just until the middle of the presidential election. Campaign. Oh yeah, no, no, that's a that's a political yeah. trap, yeah. obviously. Yeah, but but I might say, well, you know what? I'm willing to consider negotiating on some significant spending cuts in exchange for doing away with the debt ceiling entirely. Pointing out maybe that there's only one other advanced country that has a debt ceiling, and that's Denmark, and it actually works a little bit differently. And so not only that, but the argument that, hey, if we agree to take on debt, why should we have a debate every year about whether or not we're going to pay the bills that we 
took on, whether we're going to honor our obligations, because, hey, real Americans, we keep our word, we pay our debts, and these are separate issues. I think that's a, I think that's a clear, strong argument. And I would be, I think it would be worthwhile to take this off the table, because, of course, this has been something that Freedom Caucus, Tea Party, before that, Tea Party folks have used every year when there's been a Democrat in office to try to extract these concessions. And I think it's a very dangerous kind of game. And I wouldn't be surprised, for instance, if we end up, if, if negotiations get to the point where maybe there's a default for a day or two. And you might say, well, so what? But that can have some really significant economic repercussions that can have real effects in people's lives. And so now that might politically work to the advantage of of Republicans. You could say that, well, hey, if we can engineer a- I don't a, think so. No, no, no. I don't think it would ever. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that I, I, I don't see Biden doing that because I, I think that's sort of a losing uh, gambit for him. Um, I think if you look at those, these other debt ceiling fights, um, how many can you really say that Republicans won? Um, maybe the sequester issue back in the Obama era, right, where there was the, the sequestration. And um, but even and that Democrats the spending saying, didn't the really world's, world's yeah. going. To, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. They didn't they didn't win. And, um, you know, there was a sequester, but it didn't do a whole lot. Uh, Democrats said the world will end and it didn't. Um, what it did do is probably, you know, decrease some military spending that we could uh, probably wish we had now. Um, and non-military. But. Yeah, but no, I wish we had the military. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, but what, no, I mean, my, my point is that. Um, that's where I, I think it was, you know, yeah, it's easy. Look, they got yeah. sort of, sort of a win, but I, what I'm saying is I don't think this has been a great tool for Republicans. And I think it's a better tool for Democrats because they can say they can just keep borrowing the money, borrowing the money, uh, and, and spending the money. And then when the debt suddenly comes say, Hey, we got to pay our debts. Um, you know, you don't want to be like one of these, uh, uh, Republicans uh, who won't pay our debts. All we're trying to do is you know, keep our obligations and so forth. And then they'll just go back to making more and more obligations. And then, but of course it it works, right. It it works both ways because. And I'm I'm not, and I'm not saying Republicans aren't complicit in that. That's again, obviously a big pet peeve of, uh, with me and and a lot of Republicans out there is that Republicans are happy to spend this money. Um, so I'm, I'm. Which is why, yeah. Which is why it's, it's, I think in a way easy, well, not easy, but easier to agree to future spending cuts because the current Congress can't bind future Congresses. So even if you have caps, you know, as we saw with the Obama caps, well, you know, subsequent Congress can say, well, you know what, we're going to vote to actually do away with those and there's nothing you can do about that. And so uh, certainly you can say, well, okay, we'll have these caps, but then a year or two or three or four years, Congress says, well, you know, the debt Republicans say, well, we need more money for defense spending. Well, we can still do that. And so it's easy to agree to something, you know, you can always change if the need arises. And, and, and so that's why I don't. I think. I think there will be some sort of a deal. But again, I would not be surprised if there were a, a day or two of default sometime this summer. But I think the pressure that that markets will will put on both parties, the moderates from both parties, is just going to be too much for this to be, you know, like a significant issue for any period of time. Yeah, I, I don't think there will be. An, I don't think um, uh, President Biden will use the word negotiate, except to say I will not negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't I think will, you'll call. I, I don't think you'll call him terrorist, but go ahead. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. No, please. Let's let's uh, check back in a week. Okay. Check back Fair in enough. A week, and I think there will be uh, there will be some. Maybe not Biden, but there will be. Uh, oh well, yeah, sure. Uh, someone yeah. on the de- in in, uh, in Congress. Okay, the, that's uh, fair. Senator yeah. will say these are terrorists um, intent on on burning down our country and returning us to the the dark ages of 2022. Um, I think rather it will be something, the big statement of I'm not negotiate, I'm not going to pressure, I need a clean bill. And um, uh, But you know what? Uh, I'm all for work requirement. Well, no, I guess he can't really say that because he called that idea wacko, um, uh, even though he had proposed it and voted for it years ago. Um, but he'll, he'll take some pieces of that and sort of try to say this is this is my idea, this is my proposal, integrate them into the response and take it from there. But I don't think there will be a, hey, let's sit down and negotiate. Well, yeah, I, I think I think you're right that the messaging is going to be, won't be that. Now, you mentioned that, just as an aside, you mentioned the work requirements as being something that uh, so many people accept. And I would say yes and no. I think very much the devil is in the details here. And there have been a number of states, for instance, in which uh, they've been generally almost, I think, exclusively uh, or largely Republican controlled states where work requirements were designed in such a way to place a pretty significant burden on people that really, to a lot of us on the left, seems more like a way of trying to make it really difficult for people that the burden is on them to a ridiculous level to try to just basically cut welfare rules as opposed to ensure that people are making a reasonable effort. And so to me, I'm not against work requirements in some instances, but I think a lot really depends on how they're structured, because what, what does that mean? I mean, there has to be some sort of a reporting. How do you decide whether or not somebody is actually making a real effort? And that can be either pretty strict, pretty draconian, or it can be pretty lax. And that's where I think there are some there are some significant differences. So just saying, well, there should be work requirements. Okay, fine. But how are you going to structure those? That makes a lot of difference to uh, people who are who are receiving this assistance. No, and I, I agree with that to some extent. Um, but if you look back, these were this is not dissimilar from uh, the the Clintonian uh, end of welfare as we know it, um, right? And uh, that I, I would say most most people would say was a policy success uh, in the, the mid nineties um, that we trimmed the welfare rolls, got more people back to work, and and more importantly, um, got more people engaged in the you know, the economy, right? You, you had people who were just, just outside and now you're, uh, people are trained, they're getting jobs, they're, they're, they're participating. Um, because I think a lot of, a whole lot of other social pathologies go with that. That's something that the, the you know, welfare reform looked at back then. There's, there, there are advantages to having a job beyond just getting a paycheck. Um, and and I, I think that's that's important, whether it's a job or whether it's it's whatever, some kind of training that you have to go to or looking for a job. And and, and let's be frank, some of this is designed to make the re- receipt of welfare ban- benefits more of a pain than getting a job. Right. It, it is it is putting uh, burdens and hurdles up to say, <laughs> you know, there there are people who miss. Well, screw this. I might as well get a job. Um, 
and that's that's going to come across harsh, but I think there's there's some reality to that if you look at just the numbers and if you look at yeah. um, I, I all hear, the help yeah. wanted signs are still out there. And it's not it's not that we're in a deep recession where there are no jobs to be had. Right. I I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I agree. There's a there is sometimes an advantage, an important advantage to what you might call tough love, but there's also a point at which the line between tough love and cruelty starts to blur a little bit. And I think that's where that, that's where Democrats and Republicans often disagree. I know you see it as, well, like I said, tough love, whereas and, and, and to a certain extent that may be true, but I think it can go into when you hear some people, uh, again, some people are not you arguing that, well, we just need to get these bums off the doles and, and, and that it, it starts to feel like a form of kind of it. cruelty. So I get it. But but keep in mind what the what we're talking about um, in this bill, as as it was the case in the, the, the Clinton welfare reform, um, we're talking about able bodied um, adults without children. You know, so it's it's not um, it isn't the disabled single mother who you're throwing off welfare. It's it's people who there's there's no, you know physical reason, uh, or let's even say other disability, mental disability reason uh, that they can't get a job. Uh, it's not that they are, they can't get a job because they're staying at home, taking care of kids. Um, and, and I think, again, it's a tougher argument to make if you're in a, a deep recession, if this was uh, 2010 or, 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 or something like that. Um, and, and there are jobs have dried up, but we're not in a recession, at least not yet. Um, there's a good so, chance that we're, that, well, there's a good chance that we. I know. I think we're heading that a way. A better yeah. than average chance that we're we will be in one before the end of this year, at least according to the conference board and other you know, other other analysts. But but yeah, it's not. So yeah, I I, I think I, I agree. I think I agree. Generally, I think in 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 the end, I expect that there will. I, I certainly don't think there will be any kind of agreement to. Do away with the debt ceiling. That's kind of my 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 dream. But that's not the what what Biden would have to give up. What Democrats would have to give up to get that would be pretty pretty significant. I would expect. I think the only realistic chance for that to happen would be if you get a point where there's a there are large enough Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate uh, and the Democratic president. Maybe you could push that through. But there are too many Republicans who see this as great leverage to try to get what they right. feel so, you to know, be. No, too many Republicans like it and too many Democrats like it because they, they can see it as, listen, we can keep spending all the money we want as long as we put it on the credit card. You know what I mean? It's sort of that way. Um, as long as it's debt spending, um, uh, then we, we know we'll be okay because, you know, we got to pay the debt. Right. Because the Democrats are, are fine with borrowing and, and, and Republicans are too, really, because as we've talked about a million times before, it's it's a lot easier to actually, you know, spend than to pay for your spending, however you want to do it. And both parties are complicit in that, certainly. All right, well, let's move on to, well, from the uh, truly important to the, I don't know if it calls ridiculous exactly, but it certainly descended into some wildness. Uh, this week, the Disney company, they filed a lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, as well as a bunch of other top Florida officials, alleging that the state's move to revoke the company's special district uh, was part of what they termed a targeted campaign of government retaliation. Now, in response to this, DeSantis spokesperson said the governor's office is 
unaware of any legal right that a company has to operate its own government or maintain special privileges not held by other businesses in the state. So this all started, I'll remind everyone, back when Disney criticized the state's so-called don't say gay measure, which restricted teachers from discussing issues related to sexual orientation or gender identity, which DeSantis signed into law of March of 2022. I'll also mention that- uh, in, in the, I mean, you should add, because I need to add ahead. it. Yeah, please in, do. In the appropriate, great appropriate manner, yeah. Yeah, well, I should add then that this law, which initially only applied up to the third grade, this month was expanded to cover all grades at DeSantis's request. So no more age inappropriate, it's pretty much any age. Uh, but anyway, a little more than a month after that, the Florida legislature passes a measure that rescinds Disney's special improvement district status, despite concerns from local governments that they'd have to raise taxes to provide these services, uh, cost around a billion dollars at one point, they said. So that, in turn, led the legislature to repeal the law. Uh, but in the interim, Disney and the still existing Reedy Creek Improvement District Board had assigned agreements concerning uh, long-term development rights, which... Now, I should point out these agreements also didn't restrict the ability of the state to impose taxes, reject building permits, exercise eminent domain, or otherwise regulate Disney. But the media narrative here was that Disney had beaten DeSantis, had humiliated DeSantis in getting these agreements. And so the legislature and DeSantis said, well, this can't stand. So they created a new oversight body, the Central Florida Tourism Oversight Board, with members handpicked by DeSantis, which promptly voided these agreements made between Disney and the previous board. And literally minutes after that decision by the new board, Disney filed suit in federal court. Now, Disney is alleging that DeSantis and these other officials named in the lawsuit have violated the Constitution's Contracts Clause, the Takings Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the First Amendment free speech rights of the company. And they're asking that the contracts made between the company and the previous board remain in effect and that essentially all of the legislation passed by the state related to this be declared unlawful and unenforceable. And the case is being heard by Judge Mark Walker, an Obama appointee who is the chief judge for the Northern District of Florida. So there's a lot of back and forth there, right? A lot going on. But Jay, I, I thought maybe we'd start with this, the, the legal case. What do you think, based on what you've seen from Disney's complaint, uh, about their chances of actually winning in court on any of these claims. So, you know, to me, I think this this is a little bit um, plowing some some unplowed ground. Um, I, I think there's there's a couple ways you can can look at what they're claiming. If this was a, and I think the the, the weird the key weird fact is that Disney is the only one with this designation. Right. And, and well, I, actually, let me, say, let me stop here that they're actually you're going to not, say there are other other organizations. In that fact, are, there are some, some huge special districts that have self-governing rights. So, yeah, there there are somewhere over that there are well over a thousand. I forget how many. So now not all of them are this big, but there are also some pretty big ones. So that would be I just want to put that in there. But go ahead. Well, all, all in Florida, though. Yeah, in Florida, over a thousand, I believe. Yeah, I forget the specific number. But, yeah, they have a lot of special districts. All right. Well, then in that case, that that makes DeSantis' hand, I, I would think, weaker. Well, not only um, that, but I would say, for instance, yeah. you know, when, when DeSantis actually has you know, gone on the record as saying that, hey, if you if you 
if you are if you're woke, you're broke, that sort of thing. And if you go up against the state, we will hit back against you. These are the sort of public comments that really make it difficult, I think, to uh, to not argue that there is government retaliation here. Right? Oh, no, I, I, I would agree with you 100 percent. It's retaliatory. Um, um, my I guess my my question would be, is it? Is it permissibly retaliatory? Sure. Okay. Um, and and that's that's what gets into the the you know thing of if the government gives you a special benefit, um, does that entitle the government to to continue that special benefit ad infinitum? Um, and can't the government simply get rid of that? Or aren't you essentially a a benefit recipient at will uh, if it's if it's specially geared uh, towards you? So, for example, and the, this is the, the frames I was just to think think this through. Um, if you're a 501 uh, C3 organization, and um, you know there are millions and millions of 501 C3 organizations, and there are some plain, easy, objective criteria for being one. Um, and if you meet it, then you ought to be regarded as, as such. Uh, if the government, uh, federal government, I'm just arguing by analogy here, were to say, uh, listen, we're going to revoke the 501c3 um, status of this organization because we don't like what they're saying. I think that would be a pretty clear cut First Amendment retaliatory type situation. Um, you are, you know, taking some sort of a, a benefit that is available to everyone in, in imposing um, some speech limitation. Uh, the other way you could look at it would be a um, what's called the uh, unconstitutional um, conditions clause, right? That you can't condition the receipt of some legal benefit, uh, for example, being, you know, a 501c3 or some objectively determined uh, legal benefit. Um on on the surrender of some other constitutional right. You can't say you'll get this benefit as long as you you play ball with us. Um that said, I think I think there would be a different analysis if you were talking about uh a special uh one-off type type organization, right? It's it's something that in that case you're getting a special subsidy um that no one else is getting. Uh, and then there was there was a, a case that I was reading um, in my other life uh, that, that happens to coincide with this type of thing where. Um, so the Supreme Court said, uh, look, uh, there was a, a, a company that was is a um, it was back in like 1986, um, some sort of uh, fair election type um, organization uh, sues the uh, state saying or sues the federal government, the IRS saying. Look, it's unfair that we have to be a 501c4. Uh, we want to do all these lobbying activities. Um, and there were 501c3s. Uh, and if you, not to get too much in the weeds, but donations to a 501c3 uh, are tax deductible. Donations to a c4 are not, even though both organizations are tax exempt. Um, so you, you, they go, they go to the court and they say, hey, look, this isn't fair. It's sort of an equal protection violation that these guys get to get the tax deductible um, contributions and we don't. And it's just because of the activity we engage in, which is lobbying Congress. And the court came back and said, well, nah, come on, you've got you've got a right to lobby Congress no matter what. Um, the only question is, does Congress have to subsidize that right for you? And the court said, no, they, you know, we, we don't, you, you know, you've got a constitutional right, but it doesn't have to be 
there's no guarantee that it gets subsidized just because uh, something else that some other organization does get subsidized. Um, so I, I would think there was there was there would be that kind of argument, that kind of logic well, saying that yeah. uh, Reedy Creek was was something special. And what it was, it's not just a um, receiving a an objective legal benefit determination that that like any other company would. It's receiving a special subsidy and therefore um, there isn't a duty to subsidize it. But well, yeah, and, and that would maybe potentially be weakened if there are other special districts. Would, yeah, that are, yeah. But, that the, if the fact, yeah, if your fact is correct, and that those other organizations are comparable, then that's a bad fact for DeSantis. But but that said, we need to separate this out a little bit because we've been pretty much focusing on, I think, the First Amendment issue here, right? The free speech right there, but. In, again, there's also the the the, ta- the contract contracts clause, takings clause, due process clause, and that basically uh, the argument here, in a nutshell, is Disney saying, "Listen, we had this agreement with this state board, and this was a contractual agreement, and so the government didn't like it, and so they formed a new board that voided those agreements." And now the Constitution does say that states are allowed to impair contracts if they're necessary to serve an important government interest. But as even you know, the Wall Street Journal asked this week, well, why is it exactly in the government's interest to cancel Disney's land development plans that it earlier approved? And saying, well, because they're too woke, that's not really, that's probably not going to pass that test for an important governmental interest, essentially. And so- And I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've sort of mixed feelings here because I've, I've always been a big fan of the contracts clause. Um, but, but courts have not. Um, and it's something that's always kind of frustrated me. Um, like you might even remember, we were we were in a con law class together in uh-huh. uh, a million years ago, yeah, back in the day. And I I even made that the big argument, um, um, sort of sort of a a, a pro Lochner in defense of Lochner sort of thing of saying, look, what, what about the contracts clause? Um, and the the response was, ah, shut up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> contracts clause doesn't count. Uh, courts never enforces, and that and that's largely true. I would say there's very limited jurisprudence of courts actually stepping in and saying, whoa, 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 this is a uh, an impairment of contract uh, and therefore unconstitutional. Um, but, you know, the facts may be there on this case. On the takings, unless... I think that's a little weaker. I yeah, I, but I'd have to look more yeah. deeply into the, the specific arguments. But certainly, I think the contracts of, of the non-First Amendment arguments, that seems to me to be the strongest. I mean, I think you always throw in a due process thing or whatever you can. Certainly, yeah. that can yeah. mean a whole bunch of things. But I guess to me, the larger point, uh, you know, Donald Trump, right, said, uh, this is also unnecessary, a political stunt. And you know, Donald Trump's calling you out for a stunt. <laughs> but and look, I know political stunts. Yeah, exactly. But when you have a case here where, okay, the governor of the state has decided to go after the state's largest private taxpayer, largest employer, I, this is in a in what seems to be a pretty clearly anti-business sort of thing, just to what seems like to make a point to appeal to the anti-woke crowd. If you're if you're any kind of like a traditional, well, Jay Carson or 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 you know Paul Ryan type of conservative, you got to say, oh my God, this is this is really misaligned priorities here on the part of DeSantis. Yeah, this is. I think his miscalculation was he thought this could be a one and done. I'm going to whack him for being for being woke, and I'll get credit for that, and then this thing will go away. 
Um, and I, I do think uh, Disney outmaneuvered them. Um, and now we can't and, back off, presumably. I mean, and yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, shame on him for not for not seeing this coming, right? For not having the foresight, the, the forethought to say, "Aha! If I do X, they'll do Y, and here's where we'll end up." Um, so yeah, I, I think it's um, and again, and I'll I'll go I'll go back to my you know, where I was originally on this that uh, I think Disney's actions. Um, throughout the debate were were uh, reprehensible um, but not illegal but yeah you you disagree yeah, with what they illegal, did but yeah yeah not illegal but but no but what i'm saying is and and my point to to what we talked about before is i think disney broke some of uh, what are the unwritten rules of of legislative lobbying and and politics right it's sort of a, a picture thrown at somebody's head um if they do that, the other side's got to come back after you. And, yeah, I think you should. Uh, for people who aren't aware of that, you should maybe explain because reprehensible is a strong word. Can you can you give give folks a little bit of context? Yeah, reprehensible at least you... in, in my world. So so I mean, there was when this was going through, you know, in the legislative process, typically you know everyone has lobbyists in Disney more than more than most, um, and things are things are vetted through all these lobbyists, all these groups. And and before something gets passed, you say, hey, are you okay with this? Or you have the hearings and they either show up and they say, uh, we're for it, we're against it, or we don't care. Um, in this case, Disney said, we're okay with it. We don't care. Um, and then uh, after it passed and it, some of Disney's employees got worked up about it, Disney changed its tune and came back and and launch this big campaign about how terrible this is and and that is that's sandbagging right that's well not, I, I disagree that's I not you. that's not fair play i, think, I hear in, what you're in, saying in, but in the rules of that game i hear what you're saying but i think it 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 doesn't really fit into the traditional uh, definition of sandbagging because sandbagging suggests that there was a plan to do this all along and and i think a much all right, well, that's all right. That's that's fair. Yeah, and Disney, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not yeah. suggesting that there. Yeah, there was a plan to do this all along. Um, so I think Disney was forced into to this. abandon their principles when they. Yeah, I mean, D well, Disney's they, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't forced to. They weren't forced to 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 do it. They just could have told their employees, um, "Hey, if you want to complain about this, uh, feel free, but." We're not going to do so as a, as a corporation. Uh, this gets into this larger thing about the, the, this ridiculous idea. I, well, I don't, ridiculous is maybe a bit strong that that companies have principles. You know, I mean, yeah, their principle is to maximize shareholder value, and once it gets. More than that, I think you get into just really kind of dangerous territory, whether it's on the left or on the right, and that's the territory we're in, right? And so, I, I don't think. I mean, Disney. Their initial stance, I think, is their real stance. They don't want to. They don't want to take a position on any of this stuff, right? They want to. They want to appeal to as many people as possible. They want to enhance shareholder value, just like you know, just like Anheuser Busch wants to do that, right? I mean, it's not like I'm, they. I'm wondering, but I'm I'm wondering if they do anymore. I guess, oh, I guess I that's so. sort of the question. I think they just are trying to read the tea leaves and say, well, what's going to work with this market or that market? And how do we appeal to these protesters and those protesters? And because this uh, is exactly, a but that's a different, that's a different calculation than um, how do I increase shareholder value? Well, well, I think they're related, right? Because you take the, take the Anheuser-Busch thing, right? They try this thing because they want to appeal to a, a different sort of audience, broaden their market. It totally backfires. Now they're top two people, these 
two top people behind this campaign are on on leave. And so, I mean, they, this is this is new stuff for a lot of these companies, right? And so sometimes they misstep when they navigate it. And so that's why I would say it's not so much sandbagging as trying to figure out this new world where if you are a big corporation, it's really difficult to stay neutral, to stay apolitical on social issues as, as it was. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And my, my sense is you can, you could probably, um, do that, uh, I think it's probably easier than a lot of these corporations think. Well, that, explain because would, I, would, have, would have been it would have been easier for Bud Light just to have kept a, a regular uh, blue can. Okay, now the um, Bud now the Bud Light thing is a different <laughs> issue, but also it's not like they were it's not like they had cans on the shelves or anything like this was a that that's maybe a bit of a different thing, right? Well, because they took a All proactive right. step there. But but my but point, same, same thing with same thing with Disney though would you know. Again, the bill had passed; it was over. Uh, if if you want to have your individual employees or your employer, if the unionized employees union go and 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 you know have a campaign against it, uh, well, more power to you. Um, but then but, you say, but, but the problem is, corporations say, look, we're we're sitting this one out. But well, you can't, and that's the thing: is for better or worse, it's really not? difficult to do that because you have pressure from organized groups who can, you know, create some problems for you. And I think that's what, you know, what Disney, right, was facing as they said, well, geez, we don't want, we don't want these, all these people, because it wasn't just, well, some of our employees are a little upset. It's like, no, this is a big media thing. This could hurt our brand with a number of people who visit our parks and, you know, watch our streaming service and all this. And so we should do something. And that's, it. it's, it's a difficult, and so I think, it's really, and I think, and I think they're, I think they're, I think as you pointed out, I think they're, they're like Bud Light, they're miscalculating. It's, yeah, and, and it'd missteps. be difficult to. I, I don't really think there is an option to just stay out of it like there was, because now too many people on various sides of an issue would say, no, we want you to use your clout, your economic might, your your megaphone to push our issues, and if you don't do that, if you don't push back against what government's doing that we think is wrong, we're going to punish you for that. And so these are not pressures that- That, that sounds like a terrible world, doesn't it? That well, sounds you know, almost Maoist. But, but you know, I mean, if you think about it, we had some of it even back in the day, what with the divest in South Africa kind of thing, right in the 80s and that kind yeah. of thing, but not nearly as widespread as it is now. We, because, al we also had the, um, uh, there was a guy who said, even Republicans buy tennis shoes. Yeah, um, I, I, and and so, but I think that was Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly. For our, Thank our you. Yeah, younger but, listeners, but yeah, but I think the scope of the conflict has just been expanded, right? And so, this idea that you can stay on the sidelines, which I'm sure Disney and and Anheuser Busch and all these companies would prefer to do, it turns out that's not nearly as tenable in the America of 2023 as it was in you know 1993 or something like that. Isn't that isn't that does that concern you at all, though? It I, concerns me. It scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm of two minds. I understand both people on the left and on the right who say, listen, we are fighting for important things. And if we these things really matter to us, whether it's transgender rights, whether it's making sure that uh, unborn children are saved, however you want to put it. If we don't do everything in our power, including leveraging the economic power of groups that could help us, then we are actually 
complicit in perpetrating a great wrong. Uh, that's the logic of, of zealots on both sides. And so I understand where those people are coming from. But as somebody who is generally temperamentally, maybe in a lot of ways, not so much a zealot, at least there are times, but I, I think that, that, yeah, that definitely is a destructive thing if taken too far. And so, yeah, I understand your concern, certainly, but, but I also but see what you don't. And, but I, I would say it does seem to be sort of one sided in that you don't see um, corporations uh, or people calling on corporations to say uh, boycott California or New York because they have extremely permissive uh, abortion laws. Uh, or, uh, or, uh, let me think of another, um, uh, boycott, uh, X stage because they don't require a uh, voter ID. Um, uh, you know, boy, boy, boycott or, 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 Hey, Hey, X company, why aren't you weighing in on this, uh, this issue to require voter ID, uh, in our state? Um, it, it seems that the, the ratchet turns one way. Yeah. And I think um, the argument here, you're right. I, I think largely. You're right. There, you can find some other contrary examples, but largely I would agree. Now, the response to that on the left would be, well, yes, and that's because the status quo tends to favor oppression of minorities and these groups that have been kept out of the conversation. And so, therefore, of course, the ratchet's going to only go one way because the system actually is has designed or because has been the arc involved. of history bends towards justice. Yeah. Well, well, the arc of history, you know, the arc of history doesn't bend toward justice unless people push it that way. And so, uh, you know, power gives up, right? Power gives up nothing without it, without a struggle or something like that. It's the Frederick, Frederick Douglass quote that I'm But I guess, you're, yeah, but here's the thing. If, if you're the, and, and this is sort of a little off topic, right? I didn't fine. get to talk about the Bud Light stuff last week. If you're, if you're Joe Sixpack, um, who's, who's coming home from work uh, at the Ford plant, and just wants to sit down and drink a Bud Light and watch the game. Um, he doesn't necessarily see himself as the oppressor. No, uh, he not. doesn't necessarily see himself as as some racist homophobe. Uh, he's just a guy who wants to drink a beer and watch the game without getting a lecture. Um, and I think that's. But that's he didn't sort of get a lecture, right? I mean, what happened was. Bud Light uh, onto the specific case. I understand it was a limited, a limited thing. Yeah, it wasn't even a limited yeah. thing. It was just like creating some kind of vanity cans for this one, this one person, right? And so some activists on the right decided to make it a cause. And so, yeah, Joe Sixpack wouldn't have known about this at all had not some zealots on the right decided to say, "Oh my God, look how awful this is! Stop buying Bud Light." Well, is it is it is it zealotry though to say this is sort of ridiculous and silly? I, I think it's zealotry. That was my sense. I mean, again, my 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 sense on the whole whole thing isn't. Um, uh, I don't care that uh, Dylan Mulvaney solves Bud Light. In fact, I I I sort of uh, salute uh, her uh, 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 entrepreneurship. Right? Sure. I mean, yeah. Um, she's making a lot what, of it, what, all kinds of sponsorship deals and Hey, yeah. But know. what, what, what bugs me, and this is, this is on a broader sense, right. Is, is that, um, there is this, this woke's kind of social agenda that's, that's got to be carried in, into everything. And, and that's, to me, it's a, as a conservative value, right. Of why can't, why can't something just be, uh, itself? Why does it have to, um, 
you know, why, why, why should Bud Light even address gender issues? It, it's, it's just like crappy beer. Why can't we just sell crappy beer? Um, the same thing goes for, you know, I mean, uh, the NFL drives me nuts. I mean, with, with all of the, the, you know, end racism and, and yay, great, let's end racism. And, um, we're going to wear whatever colors against cancer and we're going to do the, I mean, why can't it just be about football? Um, and, and to me, I think so many people are, are seeing this across the board in, in all these institutions, um, that, that it's sort of like, well, it, you know, we can't just have, um, you know, the thing as, as it is, it's got to be infected, uh, or injected with, uh, with this other social commentary and, or, or social mission. Um, and I think people take, uh, I don't even know if offense is the word. Um, but well, yeah, no, I, that's I, I agree. Story. And that gets into, I think, a larger argument about that I would argue ties in with the decline of, of religious belief and people needing yeah. to feel part of larger causes. And so this kind of transfers into the and it's, it's social almost, political it, it realm. Hurts. It's like an anti Tocqueville sort of thing, right? That that it's like, well, you can't have the, um, you know, just your, your bowling league, right? It's got to be, the, you know, the bowling league, league's policy against racism and transgender uh, you know, it, it's it's sort of, uh, and I I serve on a number of nonprofits, and it 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 makes me bang my head against the wall sometimes. In that, uh, we're founded to do X and Y, but now we're we're doing all this other other stuff that is driving people away who might be interested in doing X or Y because they they say, listen, in order to do this, you've got to sign in sign on for all this other stuff that maybe you don't agree with. So it's sort of, um. Uh, imposing more difference, but but all that I'm, I that's no, a complete tangent. But, I, but I assume you understand the the argument for that from the people who are doing it, right? Is that is this is truly sort of transcendentally, fundamentally important? If it's that critical, that if we if there is a lever we can use to advance justice, and we don't do that, then we're not doing our job. Right. That's uh, that. That kind of sounds like something Robespierre would say. Well, but, you know, yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah, <laughs> you could take that right to a certain level. That now, I, and, and so, yeah, there's definitely, and I think that's where, that's where. Uh, well, I don't say you and I would disagree. It's it's probably more a matter of, of of degree in which we would, but that you can take that too far. Certainly, doing nothing in the face of what you perceive to be injustice is wrong or at least you can argue that it's wrong but there's a limit to what when you do everything you can do where the collateral damage you are creating is actually worse than the wrong you are trying to right and it can be difficult right. to see where that point is especially when you're so wrapped up in your cause in your own little silo that you just lose sight of that of the other aspects of the world and society. And that's where the danger lies. And that's where I certainly, you know, I, I think, you know, Burke was right in a lot of his reflections on the revolution in France and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, it can't be taken too far. I certainly agree with you on that. So let me, let me, I know we're over time, but this is something just going to, it's sort of a point of personal privilege just because this couple of things sort of happened at the same time. My, uh, my uncle passed away uh, last week um, uh, and he was, well, it's, he was, he was, getting on in years and had some health problems and um but let's let's put it this way he was a he was what you would think of as a stereotypical bud light drinker um uh okay. in fact i think he liked he liked it quite a lot um and my also my sense is he would not have been someone who was a a, a fan of of wokeism or transgenderism or 
uh, Dylan Mulvaney, but I don't think he he particularly would have hated or cared about any of those issues, right? Uh, he just wanted to have a beer, and, and and that's what sort of struck me is that the um, this sort of sort of thing of of uh, my uncle who uh, would have looked at you know he certainly would have rolled his eyes at a, a Dylan Mulvaney type thing and said, "Gosh, this this looks goofy to me," but he's you know uh, would not have uh, you know. Hated destroying. You know, we've got to stamp out transgenderism. That wasn't his issue. His issue was he just wanted to drink a beer and watch the game. Um, and, and I think that's that's what what troubles me. That there there are a whole lot of of people out there like that who don't really want to be brought into this this fight. There was uh, there was there was a, uh, the NHL. I think also had sort of a pride jersey hockey thing, and it's kind of like. You know, can't and I'm not a hockey fan, but it's really can't we just watch the game? Or on, um, I, I would argue on the or on the left, I, I would say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if every NFL game didn't have to have a a, a flag at the beginning, the big game, the flag the size of freaking North Dakota, and you know, uh, Air Force flyovers, and this does it have to be? A I would I would agree with you that no, I I, I think uh, a lot of times that is that is kind of silly. It's sort of over the top. Um, exactly. The difference I would point out is is things like uh, the national anthem and the flag uh, were things that we had traditionally as a country, as a society, agreed on. That there was sort of those were unifying symbols that most people could agree to. Hey, this is something. Uh, uh, hey, we may have our differences, Republican, Democrat, but uh, we all support the troops and, and we all salute the flag and we sing the national anthem. Um, whereas uh, uh, these other social causes, uh, and again, there's some, some just, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm against racism, um, and I am. It's quite another to say, well, look, I support the agenda of uh, BLM, which I don't. Uh, and there's sort of a conflation between the two, and a lot of people see that and say, look, I'm not going to sign on for the one when it actually means the other. But, or just, just the idea that having to take sides in all of these all of these fights is just right. exhausting. And a lot of people are just exactly. not interested in doing that. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Why can't I just watch the game and sort of have that transcendent of, Hey, we're all, you know, Browns fans here or something like that. Right. Um, and I think, I think that's a shame that we're losing. And last, and my last little point of personal privilege, does this mean if Disney can sue for a first amendment violation, um, uh, Will will the left uh, concur that uh, corporations have a right to uh, our, our people for the purposes of the First Amendment? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a, that, that's a good one. I think that's it. That's it. Is, is Citizens United now no longer uh, illegitimate? That that's a, maybe a discussion for another day. But that is a great point on which to end. And you know, we got we, we talked so much about this stuff. There's some great discussions. We didn't get into uh, Tucker Carlson being out at Fox, Biden's 2024 announcement, the beginning of the Trump rape trial, and the whole big issue about Supreme Court ethics and all that. And we will be getting into that on the midweek bonus show, which Jay and I will be recording in just a minute. And It'll be really good. It should be. I'm really looking forward to it. And if you're a supporter, you're going to see that in your feed on Tuesday morning. If you're not a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one because you get that. You get ad-free versions of all we do, other stuff at various levels of support. We hope you will check it all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politicsguys or through PayPal 
And you, since you can find all of our support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get all of our full midweek shows, but you just aren't in a position to be able to financially support us right now, not a problem. Send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I'm happy to get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it definitely helps us out if you can spread the word. And that can be through subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on your podcast app or on or by sharing episodes on social media. That definitely helps. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you join us.